0: Morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So it's 1 Corinthians 7, verses 1 through 9. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. By agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. It's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat.
1: So we're going to continue in our series in First Corinthians this morning. Series title is Cruciform Living. So we, what we're after here, what this book is after is our lives formed around the cross, where Jesus is at the center of our lives and... Lives formed by the cross. So the cross is actually the power. The gospel is the power of God, not just to save and kind of get us into the kingdom, into a relationship with God. It's the power that continues to shape us, shape our values, shape our perspectives, shape our priorities. We're all shaped by something, by someone, or a combination of things. And so the shape and the pattern of our lives will reflect what really matters to us what's most important, and it takes no effort whatsoever for us to be shaped by selfish desires and pride. We're really good at living for ourselves, okay, and just doing what feels good or what makes us look good, right? It's pretty natural to live with our own best interest in mind um, and to use others or to relate to others in order to preserve or promote our own best interests ahead of theirs. Okay? But it takes power, supernatural power, to not get sucked into that way of life, to be conformed to this world and its values. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It takes radical grace to transform us, and that grace, that mercy comes only through through the gospel through the cross of christ so how in the world are we going to change if we are born bent and broken if we are naturally just slaves of our selfishness and pride um, just again all of us this is all of us in this room apart from the grace of god we are cut off from the only one who has the power to change us so how can we have god's blessing and power if we're at odds with him okay if And if any of you are here this morning and you're under the illusion that you don't need a Savior dying on a cross in your place, then let me just ask you a question. If you were to die today and face God as your judge, he's the judge of all the earth, would you ask for justice or mercy? Like, honestly, we all know and experience guilt. We haven't kept our own standard, let alone God's. So if you're going to ask for mercy, on what basis? Can a just good judge let you off? The only way for God to be both merciful and just it was to send his son to die in our place. The wages of sin is death, eternal death. We are guilty of infinite sin against an infinitely great God. And so an infinite payment had to be made. We can't make up for our sins. We can't earn our way in. We can't do enough. We can't do anything to save ourselves. So God in his love and mercy sent Jesus to bear the punishment that we deserve in our place so we could be reconciled to God and God could be for us, not against us. And if God is for us, then we have some serious power to change, right? So Jesus wants to change all of us to be in conformity with who he is as the representative of true humanity, What's it mean to be really human? Ever since the fall, we've been killing ourselves, and so he wants to kill everything that's killing us so that we can really live. So cruciform living is life that's patterned after our crucified Savior, but more importantly, it's empowered by the death of our crucified Savior. So he gives us grace and power to change. That's what this book is all about. So this week, we're going to see the application of the cross to marriage, mainly, though with some about singleness, and next week, the cross and our singleness, mainly, though with some about marriage, okay? So that's how we're going to go through chapter 7 here. Um, And by the way, originally I was intending to go through verse 17, but in the preparation that just changed. So, we need to slow down a little bit. So, we're going to go through verse 9, and then next week, Lord willing, we're going to go from 10 to 40. Okay, so you can scrap the back half of the outline there in the, in the bulletin if you're using it. So, we start this week with marriage, not because marriage is more important than singleness. It's just that this is the first issue Paul addresses. Okay, so that's why we're hitting this verse. Married people are not more important to God in his kingdom purposes, his kingdom priorities. And one little qualifier, maybe for you parents, I am going to speak today about marital sexuality, because that's what the Bible is talking about. I'm not going to be graphic, but at times I'm going to be candid. So just a heads up. So book of 1 Corinthians, we're in chapter 7, started several weeks ago. The first four chapters address the divisions and the factions in Corinth. There were issues that were reported to Paul. He was like their spiritual father. Okay, He planted this church in Corinth. So if you flip back to chapter 1, verse 10, go ahead and flip back there just to refresh our memory. Or if you haven't been with us, you can catch some context here and get caught up to speed. So if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, the black book there. And you can turn to page 952 and find 1 Corinthians, the letter to the church in Corinth. Um, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Okay, so The church, they're like dividing up into these cliques and factions and each group has its favorite leader, you know, cult of personality stuff. And so the unity of the church is undermined and that kind of tribalism, it just betrays that they're being shaped by the values of the world instead of by the power of the cross. Because at the foot of the cross, the the ground is level. We are united around the cross in our need and in the grace and mercy that's provided to us Through Christ. So then in verse in chapter five, so that's that's chapters one to four, unity and humility and you know, proper valuation of of what you're looking for in a church leader, because they were like, Well, I like this guy and I like that guy. No, they're just servants. Christ is we have one Lord, and so we ought to be united together under Him. So then in chapter five, he has to move on to this ugly case of sexual immorality. So this guy's sin is bad enough on its own. I mean, he's sleeping with his stepmother. But the bigger problem is the fact that the church isn't doing anything about it. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, Pastor Tyler walked us so well through chapter 6, which addresses issues of lawsuits among believers, and then sexual fidelity for those who follow Jesus, okay? So in each case, Paul is aiming at bringing the cross of Christ to bear in the lives of these folks and in our lives. okay, It's the heart of the matter. The cross is the heart of the matter. And he wants um, those who've been following the ways of the world, they need to turn from those ways and follow Jesus and see how the cross is supposed to shape their lives. So from here, Paul begins to respond to issues that they raised in writing to him. Okay, So you see how chapter 7 begins um, There on page 955, if you're using the Pew Bible. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. He actually says that several times. He's going to say it again in 8.1. He's going to say it again in 12.1, 16.1, and 16.12. So the first issue here in chapter 7 is also dealing with sexuality, just like chapters 5 and 6, but it's particularly having to do with marriage, Divorce, singleness, you know, and so on. Here in chapter seven, so we look first at sexuality in marriage. So, first point: the cross and marital sexuality in verses one to six. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Do you notice the quotations? That's really important. If you miss the quotations, you're going to wonder what in the world's going on here. Is Paul? believe that? Okay, so this is a Corinthian slogan. This is something that they're throwing out there as true. So they wrote to Paul about it, and Paul is going to respond to correct their understanding so that they are shaped by the gospel instead of the cultural values and influences around them. So what does Paul actually make of this slogan? Look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. If you're like me, you're going to realize this doesn't mean what you thought it meant. Okay, I had a different understanding of this until I studied it this week. I've been doing this for a little while, so, you know, don't feel bad if you're like, wait. So what does this sound like? It sounds at first like Paul is saying, since there's so much temptation out there, a guy ought to go find a wife and a woman ought to find a husband. Sounds like what he's saying, right? That's not what he's saying. The NIV actually gets it right, makes it a little more clear. Listen, But since sexual immorality is, is so prevalent, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. See, hear the difference? Paul is not offering reasons why people should get married. Here. He's exhorting those who are married to have regular relations with one another. Oh, yeah? Doesn't seem like what it says in my book. Okay. So here's, the, here's one of the keys. You see that word have? In verse 2, it's a euphemism for sexual relations. Flip back to 5. one. This is that, you know, serious kind of ugly sin thing that's going on in Corinth that they need to address. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has, same word, his father's wife. In other words, he's having sexual relations with his father, like his stepmother, So, in other words, it's a euphemism for having sexual relations with. So also here in 7.2. So you see how that flows right off of verse 1? You're saying this, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but I say every husband should with his wife. Every wife should with her husband. You see the difference? Now watch how it flows right into verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise, the, hus- the wife implied should give to her husband his conjugal rights. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So, this slogan that he starts with in verse 1 at the beginning, while it holds true for those who are unmarried, it does not hold for Christians who are married. It is not good for a Christian man not to have regular relations with his wife. It is not good for a Christian woman not to have regular relations with her husband. Now, some of you I know, maybe particularly, well, I'd say both sexes here, you might wonder, what husband needs to be told this? Okay, so first off, you need to note that this is really countercultural, which is actually really good news when it comes to the Bible. That's a good thing. This is not just a reflection of some ancient patriarchal society that treated women as property. No. The Bible is not shy. Jesus is not shy. Paul is not shy about challenging cultural norms when they run in conflict with God's wisdom and truth. And this is... Exhibit A, right here. For him to start and say the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, for the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does, that would have flown in the face of what was normal in that day. Bruce Winter, uh, kind of an expert in ancient, you know, like first century culture, He writes this, it is not possible to find another reference in the literature of the ancient world which teaches that the husband surrenders his body exclusively to his wife on marriage. And this guy actually would know because he's read the literature, okay? Okay. In fact, in the secular world at the time, it was traditional on the wedding day to declare to the bride that when her husband committed adultery with a prostitute or a woman of easy virtue, it was not a sign that he did not love her, but simply a way of gratifying his passions. That's what was normal. Chapter 6, Tyler hit it last week, the issue of prostitution, and there was cult prostitution, so it was part and parcel with religious expression even in Corinth. So this is just hitting that head on. And so Paul, inspired by God, says, not in the church of Jesus Christ. That's not how we roll here. So remember now what Paul said back in chapter 6 again in verse 11. This isn't what should characterize us because we're shaped by something else, not by the surrounding culture. We're shaped by the gospel. We're shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. It changes everything. So verse 6, or I'm sorry, chapter 6, verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The gospel changes everything. It's intended to change us from the inside out and change everything, including our sexuality in marriage. So the saving grace of God won for us on the cross by Jesus makes us new. It's intended to transform us into this loving image of Jesus. Now, remember also, because you might be, again, like, what husband needs to hear this? Remember that this was sent to a specific church in a specific historical cultural moment with specific issues. So dualism, Tyler hit on this a little bit last week, and stoicism were pretty strong influences at the time and in that place. And you can see how they were having more of a shaping influence, kind of a Christianized version, than the teaching of the Bible. So imagine this. Imagine a Corinthian marriage where one partner, let's say the husband, thinks he's like, now that he's a Christian, he's like super spiritual. And and he's also kind of buying into some of this stoic philosophy. You know, you have to rise above your passions and just kind of live on this, you know, passionless plane of super spirituality. And so he takes this position that sexual desire is a base desire. And he looks down on his spouse who desires to know that her husband desires her. Well, if you were more spiritual, you wouldn't have these desires. You're more like an animal than an enlightened soul. Okay, I'm making this up, but something like that, okay? Why do you need to do that? And vice versa, okay? Wives could have done the same thing to their husbands, all under the misguided use of that opening slogan. You see it? So Paul counters this by making things even more clear as he goes on. Look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another. Okay, listen. I know this is going to get in your kitchen, some of you. So I hope that you know that that's good. So I'm not trying to like do this to well anyway, God this is God's word, okay? So anytime he gets in our kitchen because he loves us, because he wants to, he wants to burn away the stuff that's not produced by grace. So listen, when I say this, I, again, something I realized as I was studying this week, that word for deprive is the same word as defraud in verse in chapter six. Cheat out, sell short, withhold. You see how that makes it even more serious, weighty? Listen, Christian husbands and wives, this is God speaking to you. Do not deprive one another. It's not my word. Except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So while there were some groups in the church in Corinth that needed to have their loose sexuality reined in, like chapter 6, they may have been, you know, justifying it by kind of baptizing their selfishness in Christian language. We're free. We're free in Christ, you know, Where they may have been dualistic in their thinking, what you do with your body doesn't matter. It's it's the spirit that counts, you know? And then they were doing stuff with their body that they should have been doing. So it need to be reined in. But there's these factions in Corinth, right? So you can also imagine that there were other groups or another group that was more ascetic. And they were actually trying to be more spiritual than God's wise design for Christian marriage. They were adopting some ascetic view that denied. God's good gift in marriage. So do you see how that view is actually dualistic also? As if the bodily functions and desires are base and we need to be more spiritual and not give in to those appetites? That's not God's design. These are God-given desires. So Paul has to correct them both. So the cross actually kills selfish sexual license so that the sweet freedom of fidelity is brought to life, and the cross kills asceticism so that the lawful, God-given pleasure of sex is given life in the context of marriage. So Paul says that depriving your spouse of conjugal rights is not a spiritual thing to do. In fact, it could put your spouse in danger, danger of greater temptation. And Satan would love to capitalize on your issues. So, Paul says, withholding sex should only take place by agreement, for a limited time, for the good purpose of prayer, kind of like fasting from food, right? There's a spiritual purpose. And even that exception, Paul goes on to say in verse 6, is something that he puts forward, verse 6, as a concession, not a command. That's how he says this. So, all right. I think I know what some of you are thinking. The husbands, some of you, are thinking, Amen, so glad we didn't miss church this morning. Uh, James 1... 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. I'm painting in broad brush. I know life is more complex than this, but there are reasons why generalizations happen, okay? Some of the wives may be thinking, great. Why didn't we do go away for this weekend, you know? Or as if he needed any encouragement. So listen, we're going to come back to this, but for now, let me just say this. We, we can laugh. I think we should grieve. And I think we should repent of some of the sentiments around this stuff. So what can happen is, on one hand, we can want to use God's commands to reinforce our selfish agendas. We need to just repel that, put that to death by the power of the cross, husbands maybe particularly. On the other hand, our sentiments of resistance or eye-rolling or even revulsion at God's commands also needs to be put to death. This is something we all need to hear and heed. In fact, I let me just say this briefly. This is spoken to the whole church. This would have been read to the whole church. So if you're not married right now, it doesn't mean this isn't for you. And next week, if it's focused on singleness and you're married, it doesn't mean it's not for you. So as you hear some of these challenges, guess what? We are members one of another, and singleness is hard, and marriage is hard, and we ought to be praying for each other. Because we want the gospel to shape us here. And we know that Satan would love to twist and deform us so that we don't shine radiantly with the grace and beauty of Jesus. So as you hear these things, if you're not in that category, pray for those who are. This is for all of us. So, Paul says... Do this, one of the reasons, is so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Listen, I didn't just make that up as some sex-hungry husband who wants to pass the blame to my wife if I give in to lustful temptation. I can't ever pass the blame. Husbands, you can't ever pass the blame. Or wife, vice versa, whatever. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is always true. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we can't ever shift the blame and say that our spouse caused us to sin. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't feel the weight of responsibility to serve one another in this way, to guard against temptation. So again, as a Christian husband, I should never use this passage, never use it or this word about Satan's temptation to manipulate my spouse into more sex. That's not how this is given. okay? But we do need to take the warnings seriously. We do need to take this wisdom seriously. Okay, so if you are married right now, you are, before God, one with your spouse, regardless of how you're feeling about it right now. Although you should care about how you feel about it. And if you're not feeling so good about it, you ought to be fighting to be feeling better about it. And there's grace for that. Because Christian marriage is invested with so much glory. Ephesians 5, Paul gives us that teaching as well on Christian marriage. What is marriage all about? It's supposed to be this living parable, it's supposed to be this little scale model, this little echo, this little reflection, a living parable of the gospel. So in that sense, it should be beautiful. It's all this glory invested in marriage. But guess what? If there's that much glory invested in marriage, you better believe Satan is going to have his crosshairs on Christian marriages. No wonder it's hard. Our own hearts are make it hard enough, and we've got an enemy that hates beautiful Christian marriages. And beautiful Christian marriages take work, spiritual battle, fight, hard work. So, All this glory invested, Satan puts his crosshairs on it. He works really hard to get you in bed before marriage and really hard to get you out afterwards. You've probably heard that proverb, haven't you, or saying? But God is so clear in his word. Sex is his idea. It's God's idea. It's a good gift. It's given for our good. It's given for a certain context, keep the fire in the fireplace. It is given for procreation, sure, but it's also given for pleasure and for protection, as we see here in this passage. So you can remember those three Ps, procreation, pleasure, song of songs. That's in the Bible for a reason. God inspired that. And no, it's not an allegory of Christ in the church. It's a celebration of marital sexuality. Procreation, pleasure, pleasure protection. So feel the weight of this passage. In light of all the temptation to sexual immorality, married folks should have healthy sexual relations with their spouse. Verse 2, the husband should. These are commands, folks. They should give marital rights to their spouse. Your body belongs to your spouse. You belong to each other. Remember Psalm song, song 6.3? I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. So do not deprive one another so that Satan may not tempt you. That's God's word to all the married folk today. So just like we've come to kind of a sobering fork in the road, like whether it was church discipline in chapter 5 or the sexuality stuff in chapter 6, here again, I think the book of 1 Corinthians is going to bring us to this point over and over again where we basically have to ask the question, are we going to stand with God and His Word on this one and fight whatever's getting in the way of us embracing that? Or are we going to fight God and stiff arm Him? Where the Bible runs against the grain of your soul, what do we what do you do? Do you just ignore it and hope it goes away? Do you just stiff arm God? Or do you say, Okay, this is really hard, this really hits me with some weight, we've got some issues, but God is good. And his commands are good, and he actually gives grace when he commands things that run against the, the grain of my soul. So, Lord, give me grace. So here we are again. Who are we? Who are we going to be? What's going to shape us? God's word, the cross of Jesus Christ? Or are we going to let the flesh, our sinful nature, the world around us, Satan shape us. Oh, how we need the shadow of the cross to fall all the way into the bedroom like it should. Okay, now, this whole idea of husband not having authority over his wife and, or, <laughs> over his body, over his body and vice versa, listen, do you, I mean, do you know how, that just seems so hard to know how to navigate. It is it's a dance. It's intended to be a dance of love and servant-heartedness shaped by the cross on both sides. Just as Christian marriage is supposed to be marked by Christ-like love, marriage is ministry. You're seeking the well-being of your spouse. You're called to serve your spouse. So also, marital sexuality is supposed to be marked by Christ-like love. Marriage is ministry. You're seeking the well-being and joy of your spouse. And that certainly applies in sexual relations. You're called to serve your spouse. So you see how this is a dance. But it's a dance worth learning. If you gave up long ago, you can get back in this school. Get some dance lessons. If you need to go for counseling, get some help with those dance lessons. That's okay. When you dance, if you're not a good dancer, it's easy to step on each other's toes, isn't it? Frustrate each other. And sometimes we just give up. Don't give up. God's in the equation here. We can learn. Even people with two left feet can learn how to do some simple you know, dance moves, at least so they don't look like an idiot at the wedding. So I'm going to get real practical here. Because you know what? Some of you are going to walk out of here, and it's going to be like an elephant in the room as you get home, and you just hope that maybe things get busy so you can forget about it. Don't do that. So let's say sex hasn't been happening. Let's say, doesn't mean, again, broad brush, not saying this is going to be the case across the board, let's say the wife has not been very open or warm, just maybe you've been rebuffed a few times, and you just kind of throw up your hands. You're not sure what to do, and you're both in here. Husbands, this is not a license to treat your wife like a mannequin for masturbation. This is an opportunity to let the cross shape you as you approach and seek to lead, to learn that dance together. To sit down and say, honey, you know, we haven't been doing very well in this category. Can we talk about it? It might be awkward to talk about it, but but let's just try. Let's work through the awkwardness. Can we pray about this? What are your concerns? Like, how are you feeling about this and why? How can I serve you? And maybe there's some mitigating factors, maybe past abuse or physiological issues, whatever. Sensitivity, patience, care taken in the extreme, but If there are some things that tend to go up as excuses or justifications, don't let them just mute or drown out these truths. Just take care as you process them. I know there's a lot of sexual dysfunction in this room. I know there's a lot of fear. A lot of frustration, a lot of disappointment, a lot of shame, a lot of awkwardness, a lot of self-pity and anger and wounded pride and feeling slighted and unwanted and undesired and unfulfilled. The world, the flesh, and the devil would love to just keep that going. Nurse those grievances, offer you an alternative fantasy world escape. The world, the flesh, and the devil would love to be the potter on the clay of your heart and life. But guess who needs to be stiff-armed here? Let's stiff-arm the flesh. Let's stiff-arm the world. Let's stiff-arm Satan. Resist him. Firm in our faith in God's good word and his grace promised to us through Jesus. And let's deny our selfish flesh, whether lustful flesh, like it needs to be controlled, self-controlled, or cold, disinterested flesh. You know, God can actually, he, he created this world out of nothing. He could actually resurrect your desires. Do you believe that? Jesus and his grace needs to be welcomed, folks. You know how there's these vicious cycles. If you've been married any length of time, frustrated desire, you know, rebuffed, and then, oh, it's so easy to seek satisfaction elsewhere, more frustrated desire. If you go elsewhere, then you got, you're got you basically like, Deluding your sexual interest and desire because of course she can't compare. Women, there can be the same kind of vicious cycle in your hearts and minds as well with frustration and disappointment and on and on. So when, Bethel family, when are we going to stop letting the world, the flesh, and the devil shape us? When are we going to fight back and take our marching orders from King Jesus? Listen, I know you've probably sinned against each other. We all do, every marriage. Sinners say I do, like the book title. You've annoyed each other. You've slighted and rebuffed and punished each other. Okay, but what if Matthew 18, the passage about 10,000 talents of debt, if you've been forgiven all of this, how could you choke your fellow servant over pocket change, relatively speaking. Actually, it's not pocket change. I should say that. It's 100 denarii. That's three months' wages. That hurts. So that means you forgive stuff that really matters because you've been forgiven an infinite debt. What if Matthew 18, here's the gospel shaping us even all the way into the bedroom. You can forgive and love your spouse even when they haven't deserved it. Because you know what? Here's here's where we need to camp out. Oh, we need to camp out here. How has Jesus loved you and me? Our eternal husband, how has he treated us? How did he love us? Who were we before he came to us? We were running the other way. He overcame that rebellion, his faithful, pursuing husband, and he won our affection, but it's so easy to, we're so prone to wander. We rebuff him so often, his advances for intimate fellowship. And how does he love? Do you see how husbands, that can empower your stubborn, humble, servant-hearted, loving pursuit of your wife? And wives, if you see how you have rebuffed your Savior and He has been persistent, you could realize, oh, I don't want to be with my husband like I've been with Jesus. Give me grace. So this is love. The cross is love that's intended to heal us, not hurt and oppress us, and shape us in the beautiful image of Jesus. What if what if the cross, what if the love of Jesus, the grace of God in Christ shaped how we love our spouses? There is power in the cross to enable us to live this way, to shape our sexuality in marriage. So we also need the cross to shape how we respond to the gift God gives. Point number two, this one's a lot shorter. um, Verse seven, Paul says we need to accept God's gifts. I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul was single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Singleness is good. Do you hear it? It's not a lesser status. Singleness ought to be honored. Let's be sure we honor it here at Bethel. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. That doesn't mean they're JV Christians all of a sudden. It's better to marry than to be aflame with passion. See, Paul is saying what's good here, not this slogan, the way that it was misused. He's saying this is good, and this is good, and that's better. So let the Bible shape the good and better in your heart and life, not our sinful hearts or the world around us, and certainly not Satan. Now, there's some tension here. I want to note it. To the unmarried, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. So some of you who are single, you might be saying, oh, If only it was that easy. Well, I ran across this excellent article by a lady named Jane Clark. She's probably actually pretty local. She's a counselor with um, a bunch of years of experience. She's a frequent speaker. She's written some books and articles, one called Single and Lonely, Finding the Intimacy You Desire. And she has this really helpful thing on this passage. And she's kind of building on the work of a guy named Albert Sue, who's done some scholarly work on this passage. So each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. You hear about this like gift of singleness, gift of marriage stuff, right? Well, gift of marriage and gift of singleness are not like totally like the gift of teaching or the gift of service. Same word is used, but there are some important differences. So I'm, it's a little bit of an extended quote, but you'll see why it's so important, and then we'll be just about done. Have you always wanted to be married? As a child, did you dream about what your spouse would be like and how many kids you would have? Or maybe you're more like me. Your desire for these things came later. Maybe you wanted to be on your own for a little while, enjoying the freedom and benefits of adulthood, but now you would prefer a little less freedom and a lot more companionship. You would like to share your life with someone and long to settle down and have a family. You've expressed your desire for marriage to family and friends, and they've reassured you with a common refrain. If you want to be married, it's obvious you don't have the gift of singleness. Ever heard that one? You're meant to be married. The right guy just hasn't come along yet. But hang in there. He will. They are confirming what you have suspected. Since you want to be married, God hasn't given you the gift of singleness. If you had the gift, you would not be struggling this way. That sounds logical, but is it true? One way to find out is to use the same line of reasoning with different circumstances. Let's say you're married and you're struggling with it. It's hard to be joined to another person. You don't really like making decisions about time and money with someone else. Even though you've been married for years, it hasn't gotten any easier. You long for the freedom you enjoyed as a single person. Would anyone agree with you if, you if you said, I'm obviously not suited for marriage. I must not have the gift of marriage. I need to get a divorce. Probably not. Or let's say someone tells you that he isn't attracted to his wife and doesn't have much of a sex drive. Would you tell him, wow, if that's true, then it's clear that you were never meant to be married. You should get an annulment. I doubt it. In neither situation would you want to draw conclusions, take action, or make recommendations based on someone's desires or struggles instead of the Word of God. That's true when you're struggling with marriage, and it's just as true when you're struggling with singleness. It's a mistake to think that if God has given you the gift of singleness, He would either make you sure you never desired a spouse or children or sex, or He would suddenly remove those desires from you. If you apply this reasoning to marriage, then that God automatically brings people's desires in line with their marital status, then married couples would never struggle with being faithful. But that's not the world we live in. We live in a fallen world where we do struggle to bring our desires under the lordship of Christ. So here's the bottom line. Spiritual gifts are meant to build up the body of Christ, chapter 12. Obviously, singles are to strengthen the church too, but not by virtue of being single. Rather, singles do it by exercising their spiritual gifts just like everyone else. Your singleness is a spiritual gift. Isn't a spiritual gift then like Teaching or helps or whatever, but it is a gift from God, one He wants you to receive and enjoy with thanksgiving. If you're single, your singleness is a gift. If you're married, your marriage is a gift. If your marital status changes, God has given you a different situation within which to follow him. Whether you are single or married, God promises to be with you and give you everything you need for life and godliness through knowledge of him. With this understanding, I've come to realize that the question isn't whether or not I have the gift of singleness. The question is, what would the Lord have me do with my gift of singleness? Does that make sense? Track with that. It's really important. So, marriage and singleness are both sovereign gifts. They're both good and they're both hard. Marriage will be harder for some and easier for others. Singleness will be harder for some and easier for others. There are unique opportunities and unique challenges to each. There are temptations and blessings with each. Some married folks will be, it'll feel like more blessing than challenge. Some singles will view their singleness as more blessing than challenge. Some married folks. Will have or view their marriage as more refining fire than righteous delight. Some singles will view their singleness as more refining fire than kingdom blessing. And we all go through seasons where it's easier or harder, right? But let's just be clear, bottom line, each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. So marriage is a school of sanctification and growth. Singleness is a school of sanctification and growth. Marriage is good, There are opportunities and blessings. Singleness is good. There are opportunities and blessings. Marriage is hard. There are challenges and dangers. Singleness is hard. There are challenges and dangers. So we all need to accept our gift, embracing it with faith, seeking the grace that's ours through Christ, through the power and work of Christ on the cross. So what we all most need, and with this I'll close, what we all most need is actually not going to be delivered to us through a happier marriage or getting out of a marriage through coming to terms with singleness or finding a spouse. It won't come through getting to have sex or having more sex or better sex, although, again, in God-given context, it's a good thing. It won't come through more or better marital intimacy, although, again, that's a good and worthy pursuit. It won't come through divorce or separation if you're unhappily married. What we almost need, almost most desperately, most ultimately, most deeply need, will only be delivered to us by the one who delivered us on the cross from eternal loneliness and emptiness and isolation and rejection that we all deserve. You've been loved with an everlasting love. You've been loved with a love that has no borders or boundaries. The more you know intimately that love that surpasses knowledge from your Savior who loved you and gave himself for you, who loves you the same on your worst days and your best days, with all his heart and soul, perfectly, fully, faithfully, forever, the more you know that love you will be filled up and able to accept and use whatever gift God gives you to glorify Him and benefit others. This is not a zero-sum game, folks. The one thing that we almost desperately need, whether single or married, happy or unhappily, separated, divorced, engaged, widowed, is the one thing that's available to all of us in endless supply, God Himself. Loving relationship with God Himself. So as we come to the table... Let's eat and drink to that. Feeding on the grace that is ours through Christ. That's what we most desperately need for our singleness, for our marriage. So that we are shaped by the gospel, so that we reflect the good grace of Jesus. Oh Lord, this is sobering, And it may be a very hard word for some, but Lord, it's such a good word. All of your words are good. They're for our good. Help us to trust you. Help us to see that you don't just give us commands and leave us to our own strength to obey them. You have given us your son. You've given us so much grace. You promise so much grace. And there is grace for this. Please shape us by the cross. And as we eat, feeding on Christ, knowing our desperate need for grace in our marriages and in our singleness, we do proclaim your death until you come. And we say, oh, keep the grace coming because we want to follow you, King Jesus. It's in your name that we pray, amen.